We've been going through a sermon series called I Have Sinned. We've been looking at different individuals uh, that have cried out to God, that have confessed and have repented. Uh, and again, for some of those individuals, it was heartfelt and meaningful change. Uh, and for some, it was just some lip service that they gave to God. And so we all walk in these, these paths at times. Uh, and so I'm going to just start with a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to be in the book of Ezra today. Uh, but to kind of set the stage, I just want to walk through a couple pieces here, uh, a brief history. So 9, 931 BC, uh, after King Solomon, Israel splits and we have the divided kingdom of Israel in the north uh, and Judah in the south. And during this time, the Assyrian Empire rises to power and really begins to govern and dominate uh, the Middle East and the landscape. And as Assyria is dominating this time period... You have all of these other kingdoms like Israel and Egypt and, uh, and, and different kingdoms trying to kind of jockey and work for power and create these alliances. But Assyria pretty much dominates the landscape. And so by 722 B.C., Assyria comes in and, and gets rid of the northern kingdom. Okay? They capture them. They exile them. They say, you guys are done. You're out of here. Uh, and as time continues... The Babylonians start to rise up and they're, they're kind of in the southern portion of, of where Israel's at and they're starting to rise up and, and they get power and by 612 they destroy Assyria and they replace Assyria as the new geopolitical power of the Middle East at this time period. And so they're now in dominance of the Middle East, whatever's left of Israel and, and Judah at this time period. And by 605, Babylon invades Judah and it takes a bunch of those people and it makes it a vassal state and it takes uh, some of those people and sends them off into exile. Well, a few years later, Judah decides to rebel and Babylon comes back again and says, we have to put this down. And they actually invade the capital of Jerusalem. And in 597, they take a second wave of exiles into captivity and basically install this kind of puppet king in Judah. Well, Time continues and Judah's not done and says, we're going to give it one more try. And so in 589 B.C., they decide they're going to rebel a third time. Uh, and at this point, uh, Babylon says, we've had enough. They come in, they destroy Jerusalem, they take everybody in Judah and say, you guys are out of here. OK, you're completely done. We're tired of dealing with you. And as Israel and, and Judah is in captivity, now we get another power that comes to be, uh, which was Persia, led by Cyrus. And he comes and now he defeats Babylon and he has a change of heart. And he's like, I'm going to let God's people go back. OK, so he speaks to the people. He says, listen, I'm going to send you guys back to Jerusalem. All right. You guys can go back. You can start your kingdom again, understanding that we're still kind of in charge, but I'm going to allow you to go back and repopulate and rebuild. Uh, and God allows this change of heart. And so just as there were three waves of exiles, we had three waves of return. So in 536 BC, Zerubbabel comes back and he says, we're going to, we're going to bring a wave of exiles out of uh, exile and we're going to come back and we're going to rebuild the altar and we're going to rebuild the temple. And there's great excitement about that. And then you can see some time passes, 60, 70 years go by. And then Ezra is going to come back and he's going to come back with the law. And he says, I'm going to bring the law back to, to God's people. 
And then after Ezra, Nehemiah has, has hears about the city and he goes, it's still in ruins. And he has this desire to come back and rebuild the city itself. And so he pleads with, with Artaxerxes and he says, I want to I come back. And he says, all right. So he comes back as well. So we have these three waves of, of exile. And chapters one to six of Ezra is all about Zerubbabel's return and how they rebuild the temple and the altar. And there's some opposition, but they accomplish the task. And then Ezra 7 gets into uh, when Ezra comes back and he devotes himself to the study of the law and he's all excited and he's like, we're going to bring these people back. And Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, says, listen, whatever you need, Ezra, you can have it. You need supplies. You need money. You need protection. I will give all of that so you can go back. And so in Ezra chapter 7, it says this. It says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all of the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord God was on me, I took courage, gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. And so chapter eight of, of Ezra, he gathers men, they fast and they pray. They're like, God, we're, we're going to go back. We're going to go back and we're going to see the temple and we're going we're to be able to bring God's law back to the people. And there was such excitement. And he gets ready to go and he takes the money and the supplies and he actually says to Artaxerxes, he says, we don't need your soldiers. He says, God will protect us. And so for four months, the second wave is coming back to Jerusalem and they arrive and they bring all of the sacrifices to the temple and the altar and there's praise and there's excitement. And you could imagine the feeling it must have been all of those years in captivity to see the temple destroyed and rebuilt. There, there must have been tears of joy and, and, and just singing and, and praising out to God. And this is what Ezra gets to experience. And now if you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter nine. And we're going to see how short-lived that was. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things had been done, again, Ezra has just come back. The leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hizzites, the Persites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. I mean, I, I just picture Ezra being like, we're back, we're back. And somebody comes up and whispers in his ear and they're like, just so you know that while you've been gone, our people have married foreign and pagan wives. And in that moment, I could imagine all of the excitement that Ezra had just completely went out from him. Right. It says they've mingled the holy race and they've become unfaithful. And that word unfaithful is it's a breach of trust. It's a breach of covenant. It's the idea of adultery. It's the idea of treachery or deceit. That's what God's people had done 
to God. And did you catch that too, that it said the leaders and the officials led the way? That's a bad thing when your leadership is leading its people into destruction. And so we've got a serious problem on our hands. Verse 3. When I heard this, again, this is Ezra, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening service. And so Ezra is going to start his confession. We've seen this a lot before. The tearing of the tunic, he's pulling his beard, the, the wearing of, of sackcloth, the pouring of ash, right? It's the, it's the outward expression of the inner heart, right? Ezra is a mess. I can't believe this. And it says he's appalled. He's, he's deserted. He's, he is desolate over this. It means he's been uninhibited by all of this. It, it's this, just this feeling of emptiness inside of him. All of that great joy has now been turned into sorrow like that. And he just sits there until the evening sacrifice because he's appalled. It's like when you get bad news and your body just becomes numb and you just don't know what to do and you just sit there. No expression on the face, dumbfounded, shocked. And so he continues his confession to the Lord in the rest of chapter 9. So in verse 5 here then, he goes on and he says, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. And I fell on my knees with my hands and I spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you. My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Did you notice that Ezra just got back. Ezra just got back and he hears what the people have done and he says, our sins. See, Ezra connects himself to the wider body and he assumes the guilt of all of the things that the people have been doing, even though he hasn't been there, even though he hasn't married a foreign wife. Ezra is lumping himself in and he's just confessing on behalf of the people. And he says, God, I'm so ashamed of this. We are discouraged. He says, I can't even look up to the heavens, God. I don't even deserve to do that. He says, what we've been doing here, this is why we've been pillaged, God. This is why the sword has come to us. And we're just continuing in our treachery. Verse 8. He says, but now for a brief moment... The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. 
He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 13, let me hop down there. And he says, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and given us a remnant like this. I mean, Ezra's got a pretty honest confession here. He says, God, you are so good. God, we were in bondage. We deserve to be punished. And you brought us back. You allowed a foreign king. You moved his heart to bring us back to rebuild your altar, God. And what are we doing with it? We're continuing in the very same sins that got us here in the first place. God, you were so good. And he closes verse, chapter 9 and verse 15. He says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We have left this day as a remnant. And here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Ezra is torn apart. He makes this confession on behalf of the people. He says, God, we deserve nothing from you. We don't deserve to be back here. All we've done is continued the same sins that you told us not to do. God, we are so bad. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I deserve to be back in exile and cast off. That's where we should be, God. God, I am sorry. I am sorry for what we have done. And so chapter 10, Ezra continues... It says, while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechanah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all of these women and children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. Take courage and do it. So Ezra's praying and people gather around and they're like, Ezra, we're, we're with you. We understand what we did. And he said, you know what we need to do, Ezra? We need to make this right. We need to confess with you and we need to repent. We need to have a change of heart. And what we need to do is get rid of these foreign women. Lord, we need to, we need to separate ourselves. So Ezra, we, we stand behind you. Just say the word, Ezra, and we, we will do it. Verses 10 and 11. And then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. So he stands up and he says, You're right. We need to honor the Lord. We need to recognize our sins. And we need to separate ourselves from these women. And so they begin the process of, of divorcing themselves from these pagan individuals. 
So I want to stop for a moment and I want us to process this. Because we might be struggling here a little bit with this is the direction that the Israelites have chosen to go. See, we're kind of in muddy waters here a little bit. Because we understand that marriage is a sacred covenant, right? And now there's children involved on top of that. And they're calling themselves to separate. Well, doesn't Malachi 2.16 tell us that God hates divorce? I don't understand why this seems like the sensible answer to do this. I mean, I get the idea. They're unfaithful. But now they've bonded themselves to these unfaithful people and they've had kids together. But now we're just going to cast these people aside? It seems to kind of go against some of our thinking. We need to go back even further. If we go back to Deuteronomy, when, when God is laying out what the people are supposed to do is they, they get ready to enter into the promised land, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering and drives out nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. And we've talked about that before. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So God had already given them a command. He said, listen, guys, don't intermarry with these pagan people. Because what they're going to do is they're going to turn your hearts away from me and you are going to worship these false gods and these gods of idolatry. Don't give your sons to them. Don't give your daughters to them. You are to stay away from them. Because they're going to lead you into a trap and lead you astray. And in Ezra 10, 10, at the very end, it says they had children by these wives. And we're getting now into the situation where it's not just intermarrying with them, but some of these men most likely now have multiple wives. So now we're talking about polygamy here. Okay, so we're in a really, really bad state for what's going on. But again, what are we told? Don't intermarry. Genesis 2.24 says, right, that a man and a woman shall be united as one flesh. And they sit down to handle the whole process. And in 16 and 17, it said the exiles did as they were proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all of the men who had married foreign wives. I wanted you to hear that verse, because if we look at the dates, it took three months, three months to handle all of the cases for all of the individuals that have married these pagan women. And that list that's, that's in there in, in chapter 10, it's 113 men that are listed in there. 
And what we need to understand is those are the, 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 the leaders and the heads of groups. So what that means is there's way more than 113 people that have married foreign wives. So for three months, the leaders sat there and said, who did you marry? Tell me about it. We got to send her out of here. Who's next? And the line just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. So that shows us the sheer magnitude and volume of how wayward God's people went. And again, we still might be sitting here and going, but, but Adam, there's kids involved. It doesn't seem right to send these women and, and just say good luck. You know, what, what about missionary dating, Adam? Isn't there the possibility that if these people stay and continue to hear the word of God, that maybe they'll come to know God as well? Well, in ancient times, the custom was that if there was a divorce, the kids just went with the wives. There wasn't a custody battle where they talked about weekend and holidays. Okay, so that was just the norm, that if people got divorced, kids went with the women and they went off on their own. And I know we might argue perhaps the, the book of Ruth, right? Ruth was a Moabite. And, and, and she, she got married to, to some Israelites and she, she, she told her mother-in-law, I will follow your God. Guys, that's not the norm. Okay, it's not the norm that when an unbeliever marries a believer, that the unbeliever gets saved. More often than not, what we tend to find is that when the unbeliever marries the believer, the believer just takes the life of the unbeliever and walks away from God. So we can't use that concept of missionary dating with the hopes that just maybe, just maybe, that'll work itself out. Now, I certainly pray that, that if an unbeliever and a believer get married, I pray that that unbeliever finds Jesus and I pray that believer stays strong. But I don't want that to be our normative concept of thinking this is the usual. And back in Deuteronomy 24, we also have this, that, that in Matthew, when they're quoting this about the law and divorce, it said, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning that I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. All right? God permitted his people to divorce. It doesn't mean he liked it. It doesn't mean he condoned it. It doesn't mean that God wanted it. But here was the situation. He says, you guys are such wretched sinners. Your hearts are so hard that you can't get along anymore. And more often than not, God allowed this for protection of women. Because usually women were then in an abusive situation where God said, for the sake of saving that woman's life, I'm going to allow you to separate from her. Again, it's not my desire, but you are horrible people. So if we're struggling with this idea about casting off these foreign women, I get it. I get the struggle. I get this idea that it's just not black and white. But we've also seen God's command of how they were supposed to live and they weren't living that way. But they recognized their sin and they had a heart change. And they said, just tell us what we need to do to make this right. Because we'd rather be right with God than wrong with him. And if it meant casting these women aside, then so be it. 
So for Ezra, we come back, we're fortunate, we're blessed, we're excited, and then he hears the bad news. And he's brought to tears, and he's weeping, and he says, we've sinned, we've done what we're not supposed to do, we have married foreign women, God said, don't do it, but we did it anyway, because we are sinful and horrible human beings, and as a result, God's wrath is against us, and we will be punished for what we have done. And he said, you know what, when we went into exile, we deserved it. And if we're going to keep doing the same thing, God might as well put us in a turnstile and send us right back. Because if we're not going to follow his laws, we deserve what's coming to us. But the people said there's hope. There's hope in this. And so just as Ezra lived amongst a group of compromised sinners who were willing to mingle their holy lives with the unholiness of the world, we walk the very same journey right now. We walk a very dangerous path of compromise. We live in a world that uh, entices us at every moment. It offers us something. It says, what I got is much better. It's sweeter. Just come and taste it. It calls us to come and lie in bed with it. And you know what? We live in an environment right now that no longer is just calling us, but now it tells us because of cancel culture that if you don't join me, that's okay because I will just destroy you. So you can either join me or die. Take your pick. And at every moment of every day of our lives, the world is bombarding us and saying, join me, join me. Just give in. Compromise what you understand and what you know and what you believe. And the world is rash and it's spiteful, it's judgmental, it's hypocritical. It is looking to destroy you at every moment. And it bombards us. And evil dresses itself up with a bow and a ribbon and say, look how nice I look. It tries to isolate us, it tries to confuse us, it tries to assimilate us, it tries to indoctrinate us. That's what the world is trying to do. And sometimes it's subtle, and sometimes it's just screaming in our face. It tells us to ignore God's word and to indulge the passions of this world. And so what do we do? We compromise. And we give in. And we try to mingle what we understand about our faith. And we go, well, how can I just merge it over here? And we do it because why? Well, we want to be loving to these people. That's what it is. I, I want to be loving. I want to be relevant to these people. I want them to know that I understand them. And so I'm just going to give in a little bit. So that way we understand we're on the same page. Or maybe we do it because we're just plain fearful of what the world's going to do to us. And so we give in and we compromise. We throw our beliefs aside and we marry the holiness of God to what we think is the goodness of this world. Shane Eidelman wrote an article in the Christian Post and here's what he wrote. He said, the silent church allows false teaching because they don't want to rock the boat. 
They are liberal in twisting or reinterpreting the truth or they avoid it altogether. Can't we just all get along as their rallying cry? The pulpit may not be dead, but it will certainly mislead. Pastors of these churches are cheerleaders, but never coaches. They encourage, but rarely convict. Like a thermostat, the pulpit affects the spiritual temperature of the church. The leaders of this church keep the thermostat comfortable. Come on in. The temperature is perfect. Not hot with the realities of hell and not cold with boredom. The passion we once had for the purity of God's word can easily be exchanged for the pollutants of this world. It's very easy for us to fall into that trap. It's very easy for us that if we are not in God's word and we are not faithful to his word, if we are not faithful to our God, it is so easy for us to take a foreign wife. And so we have to ask ourselves, what have we married ourselves to that we really need to divorce ourselves from? Have we compromised in the current cultural topics of the day? Have we compromised our integrity? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with your friends. Maybe it's with your family. That in order to just have peace wherever you're at, I'm going to just give in on this issue. I'm going to give in on this. Because I'd rather have a peaceful life than stand for something meaningful. Maybe we've compromised with the people that we're listening to and what we're listening to. Maybe we've compromised with the things that we're listening and watching on television or on social media. You know, James 4.4 tells us, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What does Ezra tell us here? We need to make a choice. It's either got to be this world or it's got to be Christ. Because we can't do both. But I thank the Lord that in those moments we compromise and we're willing to make that confession, to get on our knees and say, God, I'm sorry. And I need to separate myself from this. He graciously forgives us. So if you're not sure which one you need to be married to, let me just help you out. I can choose the world. And I can compromise or I can divorce myself from it and I can be united with Christ. One of them was sent. So it can ruin us and send us to eternal condemnation. The other one that we're married to was sent on our behalf who died for us, who shed his blood for us so we can have eternal salvation. That's the choice that we need to make. So my prayer and my heart is, and God's word is calling us to follow the words of Ezra. Cast the foreign women aside, confess, repent, and follow the Lord with all of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we need to be wise. 
We need to be wise with your spirit. As I said, the world presents us a, a present wrapped up in a neat little bow. And more often than not, it, it, it secretly lies in wait. It whispers in our ears. Lord, it's easy to tell the wolf when it's dressed up as a wolf, but when it's a sheep father, it's a lot harder to see. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have compromised. I pray for a heart that's willing to follow you. But Lord, I thank you that though we have chosen at times to walk away again and again and again and to, to put ourselves in line with the world, Lord, you're always willing to take us back. You're always willing to give us another shot, to, to give us a second chance, to forgive us. So Lord, let us stand out differently. Let our light shine in this broken and foreign world. Let our love be married to you and to you alone. Because God, you gave us the greatest love by dying on the cross. Amen.